I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, welcome along to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to Caroline Dunford, an author who is prolific. She's published over 30 books spanning all genres, wartime mysteries, romance, YA. We talk about how, with so many ideas floating about, how does she decide what she's writing next? Also, you can hear how she plans a year to write three books in it. And, after writing so many books, what has she learned about what her stories need to be in the future? It's made me realise that the only things I will write are stories where I am totally in love with the characters and where I really want to be in that journey with them. I mean, if I could, I would step into that book and and, and be doing whatever they're doing alongside them. I used to get touches of that in other in, earlier on in stories where there were bits where I really felt immersed. But now I recognise that feeling of excitement and the feeling that several hours will go by and it'll be like 10 minutes. I've just been writing away. There is more with Caroline Dunford in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along. My name is Dan Simpson. This is Writer's Routine. I'm very thankful that you are there. It's the show where we take a route through an author's working day. We see how, when and where they get to work. Uh, There's a lot of why in there too. Uh, This week's episode is brought to you by the new true crime podcast, Who is the Cheese Wire Killer? Now, if you love writing, which I think you do, if you love storytelling, I reckon you probably do. If you love podcasts, well, I hope you do, then you will really enjoy this. It's right up your street. Who is the cheese wire killer is all about uh, a murder back in 1983. Unsolved. It's regarded as one of Scotland's most gruesome unsolved murders. And across five episodes, told through a mixture of documentary and drama, this series goes into the very centre of a live investigation. It's going on right now, and you can be part of it. It's a classic whodunit case that has baffled the police for over 40 years. The killer is still on the run. A few months ago, the police announced the biggest step forward in this case. There is interviews with so many key players, with a senior investigating officer, with forensic scientists, with psychologists, as well as family members and friends of the victim too. So if you really enjoy your true crime podcasts, they're a huge hit, and you want a different take on it, 
a twist on the genre. Well, this is something that's never really been done before. You are part of a live investigation. Try and uncover the secret. Who is the cheese wire killer? You can find the series now. Search wherever you get your shows and try to solve one of the most famous murders ever. It's a really good chat for you this week. It's almost philosophical. Talking about the big picture of writing. How brilliant and exhilarating and compulsive it is, but also how tough it can be too. Our guest is Caroline Dunford. She's published over 30 books. Her best loved is the Euphemia Martins mysteries, murder stories that happened over 100 years ago. She's also published across genres. Her newest release is uh, YA. It's called The Augmenters, which she's published as Gemini Gibson. Caroline teaches writing too. And we really do get into it. You can hear why she has a a storytelling infection, why she needs it to make sense of the world, but also to the point where writing all the time doesn't give her burnout, but saves her from it. Also, we run through why sometimes she's writing under contract and other times out of it, those times when a story needs to be told. You can hear about whether plot development changes in a series of many books. Like when when you've written 17 stories with characters... Do you get into a rhythm of, of knowing what is more or less likely to happen? Does anything still take you by surprise? And there is the truth about the realities of being an author. One who writes and sells books, but one who has never had that, that huge book that sold millions of copies and sends you to shop windows. How does that feel? What's it like to, to keep carrying on when it's such a tough publishing world out there? We go through all of it with Caroline Dunford and we pick things up as we always do with what she sees around her and the place where she sits down to write. I've got a big screen in front of me. I'm sitting with my face to the wall which is uh, full of books and um, I have got screens on my left and my right as well. I have books in all across my desk. I have a laptop. I have nail varnish, um, my drink and charging stations box of pens and bits of papers with notes on them oh and even a pair of earrings i live at my desk well it's it does sound busy it sounds curated like you know exactly what it is that you need around you to to write i'm i'm, I'm thinking of a almost like a, a pilot sat in, in 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 the in the chair with all the instruments and the levers around them now you've published over 30 books right so it's a lot of time writing how along that way how much have you learned about what it is that you do actually need to write uh, an enormous amount uh, to be honest um i think the most important thing that i've learned is that I always used to tell stories and write stories and make up stories. It's something in my nature. And that includes right from primary school when I used to write plays for everybody else to join in. And I now teach writing to a certain extent. But the thing that I really discovered is what can't be taught and what can't be manufactured in any way is that desire to write. Uh, if I don't write, I get unreasonable. I get grumpy. I'm not comfortable in the world to the extent that people in my family will say, have you done any writing today? So for me, the most important thing is you have that drive. You can have ideas, you can have craft, but there needs to be something fundamentally wrong with you (laughs) that makes you want to write. I guess um, I think my writing is all about making sense of the world around me, which is 
a very confusing place. Where do you think that comes from then? As you say, you can't teach having that just inbuilt desire, that need to write. I speak to a lot of authors and I would say perhaps some don't have it anywhere near as strongly as you do. Just looking over how many books you've written over so many different genres and so many different forms of media, right? There is there is this this strong desire just to get stuff down. Where does that come from? I think that's a really interesting question. And it is it's not an easy one to answer. I mean, you could regard it as an infection, I suppose, and that I have it worse than most people. But I mean, more seriously, it, it is about me making sense of the world around me. And I, there's a lot of things in the world that I think, well, we all don't like, or we all wish were different. Um, as an individual, I don't necessarily have any power to change any of the things I don't like. I don't have lots of money. Well, I'm a writer. Of course, I don't have lots of money. Um, so what I can do, and probably this is a big part of what drives me, is ask questions within my stories to reflect back what I see in the world and in society around me. I'm not giving people answers because I don't have the answers, but there are sometimes things that just don't make sense to me. And I suppose those are buried in my stories. Those are themes within my stories that I hope other people will look at. So it's a desire, I suppose, just to, just to ask why is the underlying pushing thing? Why do, do people do certain things? Uh, why does the world work in a certain way? Why don't people say things? Why do people pretend that life goes on forever? I, I mean, in the sense that they don't think about their own demise or the demise of others, all those kind of things. Uh, and I think that's what I'm trying to unwrap when I'm writing, partly for myself and partly for my readers. Yeah. It's easy when you're an adult to rationalize it like that when, when you are much younger you're, you're not able to do that is have you always felt this need to write I mean a, a lot of a lot of kids will just write in their spare time you know imagine story. was it was it was it even stronger and more frequently for you it was always it was if, if I'm, I'm the first memories I have are of writing or telling stories um, and I think as a child, it was about just making sense of the world and sort of checking out, is this how the world works? I mean, we all are uh, a collection of stories, aren't we? Because we're all made up of our memories and our memories are sort of put together um concertinaed versions of our experience. We, you know, we cherry pick bits and pieces. And every time we look at our memories, we look through the lens of our experience to date. So our stories are constantly evolving. And I've always thought of the world and people like that as stories that interact. Uh, I think it's just a particular way, I think, partly. And I think there's also something in there ab about uh, the fact it was fun. I mean, when I was when I was really small, making stories was fun. Um, and also when I told stories... I was popular. People wanted to hear the stories. I wasn't that popular otherwise. But if there was a story to be told in the classroom or in the playground, people used to say in primary school, even get Caroline to tell the story. And that was, I mean, that, that was nice. So I got lots of positive reinforcement from it as well. 
and that's probably why it became more and more a part of me. And you've worked yourself into a position where you can tell stories and, and make make something of a living out of it, as you said earlier. I know that you do an, an awful lot. At, at, at what point do you remember like thinking so seriously about telling stories that you learn how to do it properly, that you kind of sat there and thought, oh, how do other authors do it? How's the best way to plan a story? What, what does a, uh, what act structure do stories need? How forceful was that thought for you? I think it was something that definitely evolved over time. I, first of all, when I first started writing, I, I wrote short stories. I used to write um, that this was, I'm not going to tell you how long ago it was. It was a while ago. Um, I read lots of short stories magazines and I enjoyed short stories. So I thought I'd write, um, I would actually try to get professionally published. And when I wanted to get professionally published, I started looking at short stories and thinking about how they were put together. But I don't think I really knew very much then. Um, and then when one of my sons was very young, I got uh, a contract to write a book about basically a narrative diary about what it was like living with a two-year-old because it's kind of all-consuming. And I wrote sort of like information panels because I've been a journalist. So I'd been through journalism school, which gives you a perspective on how to write. But then when I started writing the narrative tale and realized what needed to be included and didn't need to be included, I think that was a big change for me. So it's a certain amount of learning through experience. Although being taught how to do journalism, I find a lot of authors have been journalists at some time in their life because journalism training is very exact as to what you put in, where you put it in, so that when you come to fiction, it's something of a relief. So I definitely started thinking there. And I decided that one of my weakest things when I was first starting out was my dialogue wasn't always that um, convincing. So I went to workshops by um, some fairly uh, famous Scottish playwrights there, um, Douglas Maxwell, for for example, um, just to learn how to write better dialogue. And I discovered that I actually could write plays. I thought I, I didn't have any idea how to structure a play. I mean, I'd done them when I was a child, but as an adult, I didn't. And I discovered that I, it's a very different process that I could write plays. And then I think I started thinking much more in terms of acts and investigating acts and thinking about those kind of points of uh, total commitment, um, point of no return, when you need to do reversals, when you need to focus your story and recap it. And I do approach it differently depending on what I'm writing. Some of my longer running stories it kind of feels comes quite naturally because I know them so well. But when I'm writing newer things, like um, as Gemini Gibson writing The Augmenters, it was very much me concentrating on how I unfolded the story and where were the major points I was going to use. And then I was getting between the major points and constantly trying to raise the stakes. That's a very long answer. No, no, no. You mentioned... Uh... Uh, like when you first started and, and learning that you maybe weren't so hot on dialogue, uh, how much are you, are you still analysing what you do and thinking, oh, I can get better at this? And then if there is something that you feel you can get better at, how, how, are, you, how are you doing that now? What, what are you turning to, to to help 
and to, to teach how to get better on like very niche specific parts of the craft because you've been doing it for so long? Okay, I think you're always getting better. Um, is the answer. I think you're always improving. Um, uh, until I write the perfect novel that sells in multi millions, um, I and which I almost certainly will never do. Well, it certainly won't be perfect. You are always working to refine your craft and to refine your voice. I think there's a certain amount of confidence that comes with publication that allows you to fall more strongly into the voice of the characters that you're writing. I mean, one of, you said I write across a lot of different genres and people are sometimes surprised at the different tones or the different voices that I use. And I think writing plays, just falling into different characters and being able to write different characters, I think a lot of it does come from dialogue for me and also from building up essentially a profile of that character and knowing why they are doing what they are doing. If I'm doing, I'm still looking to improve things I know I have to improve. Um, I still look at shrunk and white like every, well, like everybody does at the start, because I'm very good at kind of scattering commas across a page. Every time I stop when I'm writing, I stick in a comma. I know that I have to work on that. Um, I also have to constantly tell myself not to use semicolons and colons because I'm not writing, um, I suppose, what you call literary fiction. Um, I need to make it. I stop and I think about how punchy a story is. I constantly think about what, how does this scene own, um, own its part in the story? How does it, how does it earn that it should be there? Is it just a nice scene I've written because I like the characters doing something? Or is it a case of it needs to carry, I need to do something different because I need to carry the story forward or I need to take that out? I also spend a lot of time thinking about language um, and rereading things, looking over my language, thinking about um, whether or not I'm using contractions, or also whether the language I use. I love words. Um, I love weird words. I love amazing words. And they're not always the ones that you need to put in the story because they aren't necessarily what people need to, to hear. Um, they need to have a story that is, that gives them, um, sense, all the senses and it gives them emotion. It doesn't need to send them to the dictionary. So that's something that, um, I mean, I really like really obscure words. Uh, so it, it doesn't need to do that. So I watch for that. Um, I teach, um, as, as you know, um, a part time at Edinburgh University. I teach creative writing in continued ongoing learning, uh, Cole. And when I'm there, I actually think I learn a lot from my students. I have all these techniques because I, I tell them right from the start that I'm just teaching them craft. I can help them relax and imagine things more. I can give them sort of springboards but I can't give them the desire to write I can definitely teach craft and sometimes the way people approach things just blows me away it gives me an entirely different idea and also equally sometimes when people do things that don't work it's really refreshing to be able to say to somebody this doesn't work because you have um you've written this extra piece because you needed to know it for example um Students love writing um, prologues, and a prologue is normally, not always, but normally just you setting out the background details of your world, and everything in it generally needs to, well, well, should naturally come through the story. So does that answer your question? 
Yeah, it absolutely does. And and you you speak about kind of learning how to write genre and and some of the rules. I mean, you were talking about ways of laying out your sentence and because it's not literary literary I always struggle with that word because it's, <laughs> it's a horrible liter- word li- literary fiction because it's not literary fiction uh your sentences perhaps need to be in a slightly different yes they have. yeah in a slightly different mold I guess so you've written what is it in the um uh, is it 16 books in your Euphemia Martins mysteries? Uh, 17 now. So there are 17 books in that in that series set in the past. So and at what point kind of writing those 17 do you feel you got the voice? How long did it take you to understand the tone of what these needed to be to understand the rules of the genre you were writing in? Okay, if I'm perfectly honest, um Book nine is where it really takes off. I would say I would say the books before are competent; they tell a reasonable story. But book nine, which is um, a, a death for king and country, is where I really feel that I got a proper handle on the series. So that's a big confession. There are eight books that are good and entertaining. She says, "Try not to put readers off," but it's book nine that it really, it really comes into its own. I think. How did you know that at the time? Do you remember feeling during book nine? Oh, you know, I've this is something a bit different. Maybe, maybe I've maybe I, maybe I figured something out now. No, I didn't realize. Um, I just read it again um, a book or so later on and realized that it was very distinctly different. It was also a longer form because the books to start with started off um, at like 50,000 words. And this is when it starts moving to the longer form. And I had more space. And usually you're trying to cut things in stories to make them crisper. But because I wanted to go so in depth with the characters um, and it was about continuing characters and there were a lot, there's a huge cast. You don't see them all all the time, but different people pop up again and again um, along with the main sort of protagonist that was the one and when I think I look back at it and I read it and I thought okay sounds immodest but I thought this isn't half bad where the others ones were sort of like yeah that's okay but this was oh so it was really going back and reading it again and thinking in some parts of it I was looking at it and thinking did I really write that I suppose in other words when I was actually writing it I was so in the story. I planned the story. I knew what was going on. I think for me, I have to, if I'm doing any kind of mystery, I knew what was going to happen, but I had really disappeared into the book and into the story so that I wasn't as aware of what I was actually writing. That sounds like a strange thing to say. There's a lovely book called um, Zen and the Art of Writing by Ray Bradbury. And he talks about it, um, writing his first decent story and knowing that he'd written his first decent story because at the end of it he was had sweat dripping off his nose and he was so emotional um, and he just so connected with it and I think that's what happened with me in that book maybe not to the same extent because I wasn't doing anything quite as um, strong as maybe one of his stories might have been Um, but yeah it's that you realize that when you've been writing you have just been in that world. How much has the knowledge of that and the memory of that time and 
rereading it and discovering it was something different. How much has that stayed with you and, and influenced how you work on things ever since, knowing that you can do something like that and it was quite alien to what had come before? It's made me realise that the only things I will write are stories where I am totally in love with the characters and where I really want to be in that journey with them. I'm, I'm, I don't mean as a, as, as a writer. I mean, if I could, I would step into that book and, and, and be doing whatever they're doing alongside them. It's, it's made me, um, I used to get touches of that in other, in earlier on in stories where there were bits where I really felt immersed, but now, um, I have to feel, ex- I, I, I know that there, I, 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 mm, I recognize that feeling of excitement and the feeling that, you know, several hours will go by and it'll be like 10 minutes. I've just been writing away. So for me, I suppose this is also very relevant. I need to think, um, I might wander around for a day or two days looking as if I'm doing nothing. Then I'll write, I maybe write a few notes. And then the next day I might churn out 10,000 words. And of course, I'll go over it and I'll edit it. But the majority of those words will be used. So I do a kind of internal processing before I actually commit to the page. Well, the typewriter, not the typewriter, <laughs> the keyboard. Usually um, I wake up in bed. Uh, I do the terrible thing of reading my email in bed. Then I will get out a notebook and I will note down all the scenes I'm thinking or hoping to write that day. Now, this is always a wish list rather than necessarily a reality, because sometimes when I come to write, I find that I now allow a little bit of organic growth. I don't go off a massive tangent, but there might be little extra scenes, or I might decide that one of the scenes I wanted to write isn't going to be necessary. Um, Then um, I usually, my poor partner, um, makes some kind of breakfast if it's a really hard, if it's a really strong writing day for me. Um, I'll eat something, I'll sit down and I'll write for maybe two and a half or so hours before uh, I need to stop for coffee if my sons haven't just been coming up and giving me cups of coffee in an attempt to keep me quiet and out of their hair if they're at home. Um, um, I'll have lunch. I will work into the afternoon um, as well. So I'm doing, I mean, this is a, a very heavy writing day. I will try and do something sociable. Um, in the late afternoon, early evening. So that might be just playing a game with a family or reading a book or um, going out for a coffee. And then I tell myself that I will have dinner, I'll watch a bit of TV and I'll go to bed. And the reality is that I have dinner. I either find a story that really interests me and I watch far too many episodes and go to bed very late, or I have dinner and I go back and I write some more. So that's a really strong writing day for me. How you said that that is a writing day, which implies that there are some days that aren't writing days. Like how often do you get that dream day, the really strong ones? Um, it goes by season um, and it goes also depends on contract. I would say when I'm um, at the moment, slightly late on delivering a book um i am doing writing days um uh every day apart from wednesdays and thursdays when i'm working for the university that includes weekends um i'm not usually late with anything uh there's just been a series of life events 
that have made that slightly more difficult. Uh, so I would say in normal circumstances, I try to write um, Monday, Tuesdays and Fridays. And I try, sorry, I was going to say, I'd be, I'm always very bad at taking weekend days off. So sometimes I work then as well. But when I say writing days, um, I think this is what you're going to ask me next, actually. Some of those days, if I'm planning a book, will be research days because I do a lot of research before I actually start writing. Are you are you are you bothered when you when you work weekends? I'm trying not to because it doesn't make me a very you know I I, I think I used to have friends, um and I and I remember the names of most of the people that live in the same house. But you know you can get so absorbed in your writing that you can just kind of um withdraw into this little hermit world and then I go out and see my students a couple of days a week and I talk to them and I thought oh well that's my that's my interaction with the rest of the world back into my world and I, I'm not sure how healthy that is because apart from anything else um I think and though I'm not really doing it right now but I think the best writers are people who actually also experience life who go out and, and, and talk to people and mix with people and look at what's going on in the world uh, and, 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 you know, use their, use their writing as I usually try to do as, as a mirror. You said earlier about the 10,000 words days. I, I can, yeah. Those, those, are, those are really heavy days. I mean, at the end of a 10,000 word day, my brain is mush. What, what are you normally working to? Uh, 4,000 is comfortable. That's still quite a lot, isn't it? Um, I think that that is. I think that's just down to me. I think it is quite a lot. I, I've read that some authors write that, and then I read that some authors write, you know, seven hundred words a day, and maybe their seven hundred words a day are better than my four thousand. I don't know, but four thousand is a comfortable one for me. And and through the year, writing all these words and flitting about between genre, are, are you always able to? Can I keep that energy up? Is the, does this desire to tell stories and write completely outweigh any feeling of I don't know burnout that you might get? I think I think stories save me from burnout. To be honest, um, I, sometimes yes. Obviously, I sort of say right, I'm not going to write for two weeks. You know, do I, we'll have a, a staycation? It's been more recently because of the pandemic. But by the end of those two weeks, I'm, I'm clawing trying to get back to the keyboard. Um, I don't think writing brings me burnout. I think there are other things of life that I can find quite exhausting and writing, if anything, is my saviour there. Um, I have more stories to tell than I expect I will ever have time to tell. I don't have any shortage of things I want to do. Of course, now I, I do talk to Amy, my agent, and she says, well, maybe people would like to hear that story more than this story. Um, so not that all the ideas I ever have come to fruition. but. Uh, yeah, writing. Well, writing is is my safe place. Writing is my re-energizing space. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. I was the first scientist to open up these items that had been stored by the police since the time of the crime. And it's always been in my mind for over 40 years that I could have found the guy responsible. I firmly believe that somebody out there knows something. Who is the Cheesewire Killer? Listen to the full series now, wherever you get your podcasts. Yes, and this week we are sponsored by that new true crime podcast, Who is the Cheesewire Killer? Have a listen, you can be in the heart of this live investigation. The full series is there for you to listen to and binge through. Just search Who is the Cheese Wire Killer wherever you get your shows. And you can support the podcast as well. You can sponsor us if you like by pledging over on our Patreon page. Become a backer, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. For just a few dollars a month, it helps us carry on. It helps us keep bringing you these chats with the best authors around. Such wide, varied authors too. For that, you get merch. There is bonus content. There is even a way for your book to sponsor this show. So if you've put something out there, if it has not got the, the, the plugging that you think it absolutely does, so do I. Well, let me do it for you to make that happen. Become a backer. Support this show and help this carry on. Get to patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with Caroline Dunford, busy, busy, busy author, writing three books a year normally. She's published over 30. Her newest one is The Augmenters, which she's released under the name Gemini Gibson. We'll talk all about that. You can also hear what happens when readers love a character more than you expected. Also, how she figures out the tone of a book and the voice of it when she's flitting between genres. And we get back into it talking about how with so many ideas in her head... How does she know what she's writing next? The Euphemia um, and the Hope stories, as the both of the World War stories, the World War One and World War Two, um, they are contracted and they're contracted in sort of blocks. Uh, so they're sort of ongoing, um, and while they're ongoing, they're, 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 that's something I'm just doing. When it comes to the Augmenters. I had written the Augmenters on a whim, and I showed it to Amy, and she loved it. Um, we did a couple of little changes and then um, it was there. I currently, I can't tell you what it is, but I have another 
um, genre book out on submission at the moment. And that book came out of Amy and I sitting and talking online because she's in America. Um, and we were just chatting away because we, we are also quite good friends. We are good friends. And she said, Oh, that would be crazy, wouldn't it? If you wrote a book about this. And I said, well, if I was going to write about this, I'd do this, this and this. And she just jumped up and down in excitement and squeaked. Um, <laughs> so I wrote it. <laughs> so sometimes it comes out of what we think we can sell, because the reality is that if you want your books to be read by others, you have to be able to find a way into the market. And she knows a lot more about that than me. Um, the Euphemia books and the Hope books are dictated by the faces of the war and the original story arcs that I thought of for the characters and where I thought I would leave them. Um, so what I used, what I did very much with the Euphemia ones was I did one book that was very much about what was happening in the characters' lives and then I'd do one book, same characters, but something that was happening historically that was very important that they get, they got caught up with. Although I will say, I always get them caught up preferably. My characters are always making a difference in the world, but they're the people you don't normally see, the people behind the scenes, because the others um, so frequently uh, turn up in fiction that I just wanted to do something different. It is interesting that you write under contract, yet you, you mentioned writing the augmenters and how you would kind of written that with without a contract, right? You were just doing that in your spare time and then you showed it to, to your agent. I'm... I, as I say, I've spoken to a lot of authors and, and I don't think m a lot of them would take that view of it. I think sometimes it's, well, I ain't writing if I ain't getting the money at times. Well, it's difficult, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a funny, it's a funny business publishing. Um, it's constantly changing and I don't think it's the, the most, what would be the good word to use? Um, transparent uh, egalitarian um, straightforward industry so yes I mean I I, I work part-time so I don't depend solely I used to depend solely when I was first writing your female books but I don't anymore depend solely uh, on my writing and also with Amy we've been talking about um, writing a book that might get me more attention, which is, you know, always hope you always hope the next book's going to be the one that really takes off. And it's very hard at the moment to do that. Uh, I'm sure a lot of your other authors have, have mentioned the, the celebrity cult, which has been, um, and, and there's, there's nothing wrong with celebrities writing, obviously not. But, you know, when uh, you get celebrity writers in the, in the crime um, uh, section, for example, it tends to wash everybody else away. Um, because people just go for names they know. And with ebooks as well, so many people can self publish. There is so much material out there. It's hard to get attention. So sometimes you just write something that you feel passionate about if you have the time and you give it to your agent. Well, I give it to my agent and say, can we do something with this? Because I was really passionate about this story and I, I put my, my heart and soul in it. Um, and Every time I've done that, which is only the augmenters and the other one, which we don't know about yet, um, we've got a lot of interest. So, 
yeah, risky. Your your novels. I mean, you, you you've you've sold novels, right? But I mean, as you said, you're 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 waiting for that that book that is really going to take hold. And earlier, you mentioned like the the multi million copy bestseller. How, how how do you feel like having published so many novels yet you've never quite had that one that is absolutely gone gangbusters completely blown up just yet yeah I suppose I feel a bit like Van Gogh felt (laughs) (laughs) that's a big comparison to make I know isn't it it's a really cheeky comparison to make but but, uh, um, I don't necessarily think I'm a genius everybody likes to think they're a very good writer I think Um, I think I'm I think I am a good writer but you know um um, I fear I may be discovered after my lifetime. <laughs> um, I just think the market's got harder and harder. And it is, that is one of the few things that can make me quite depressed when you think it's not that when, when I do get reviews, generally my reviews are, are really good, but it's always reaching the public. And unless you have a huge amount of money to throw at, you know, displays in all the Waterstones in, in, in the country or whatever, uh, it's, it's not going to, it, it's hard to, to get that traction. Sometimes people do. And, you know, I think that's great. But uh, it, you usually get as much traction as your publisher puts money into your books and publishers put money into books they are absolutely sure are going to succeed. And the book with a famous name on the front is always going to succeed because people will buy it to see what it's like. Um, so that's what you're competing against. It's a bit depressing, but I still hope, I still hope. I'll often hand a book in around about February, as in this one that's slightly late. Uh, as soon as I hand the book in, I become really depressed. <laughs> Some people celebrate, but I tend to feel it's gone and I feel really deflated that what I was doing and enjoying is gone. And it usually takes me a couple of weeks to get out of that. Then I will start planning. Um, I will look at how long before the book has to be delivered. And I will plot the novel in a notebook by hand. But when I say plot, you know, it's untidy notes um, compared to, you know, some people do beautiful notes and very clever plans and use Scrivener or whatever. That's, that's not my process. So if I hand it in a book in February, by the end of the next month, I will have um, planned my next novel. And I will have divided up and given myself um, uh, how many words I need to make a day to get it into its its contract. So if I say I was writing for, uh, I usually only do one book at a time. So say I was writing over the uh, over the next three months, it would be for for that book. So you're looking at every quarter a period of maybe a month planning and three and three months writing and delivering so how so those three months those three well i guess two questions that month plotting and researching uh how streamlined is that process now do you kind of immediately know okay here's what i want to do here's what i want to look up if i if you're diving into a new genre are you completely aware of how you're spending those days or is it a a bit of a a teenager kind of doing homework not really under not really sure of what's happening (laughs) I think it's probably halfway in between because there'll be certain things that I definitely want to research um, and I know I want to research. Um, I have, for example, I'm writing a, um, one of the Hope novels at the moment and I'm writing about the, the Blitz. So I um, needed to know 
well, obviously when the blitz happened, but apart from that, I needed to look at what the bombs were that fell during that time, whether what areas of London they fell in, um, uh, various things about how emergency and rescue services operated, uh, um, and just the, the, the locations and how people managed. Uh, it was actually, I'm not going to go into huge detail because it was all a bit depressing and some of it, it was really quite challenging to write. So there will be those kind of things that I know I want to know. And then there will be the odd little thing that comes up during my research that I follow. And I try not to go down too many rabbit holes that will give me an extra idea. So, for example, I was looking at this um, and one of the background characters needed to be involved and they needed to be in the Ministry of Information. And I was trying to think about what they could be put in. And it was meant to be partly funny as well, because this person is naturally probably an engineer more than anything, although they haven't had the chance to be to do very much of that. Um, so I put them into um, what was known as MO, the mass observation. So they were actually collating all the mass observations, all the diaries that were collected. Um, and their spelling isn't isn't even that great. And they're having to read all of these reports and file them. But I came across MO, um, which is fascinating, the Mass Observation Project, absolutely fascinating in itself. And there's lots of stories within it about what happened in the Blitz. Um, but that was, that was a kind of a little treat that I found on the side. So I was concentrating more on the hardcore stuff. And I found an extra detail that I could incorporate. I thought, right, that, that will work. So... I start out with things I absolutely need to know that I know I need to know for the story. And I look for background details. I look for interesting little other bits that come up at the time. But the thing is, I've been writing um, from the first and second World War books now for such a long time that I have read a lot. And sometimes it's a case of when I'm reading, I will also be making notes saying, oh, well, this will go in book number whatever in the future. So... Again, that's a slightly organic process. Well, just mentioning the, the wartime books, I'm so, and I'm looking here. So you've got in the Euphemia Martins and Hope, so 17 books. And so there's a death in the family. There's a death in the Highlands, a death in the Asylum, a death in the Pavilion, a death in the Lock. My personal favourite title is a death in the, in, the, in the Gentleman's Club. So I really, I really enjoy... And, you know, idea generation can't be as simple as this. So I apologize for making it out like it. But what's it like? And, it, and the question, by the way, is not as trite as where do you get your ideas from? But it, it seems like you've got these characters to a point now where you can kind of plonk them in places and they find a dead body and chaos in shoes. And you've got a story. Tell me it's harder than that. It is a bit harder than that because um, uh, in the Euphemia novels, the uh, Euphemia is based on my great grandmother, um, who well, she was the one that gave me the idea. And this is something I haven't mentioned to you. Um, I woke up one morning and thought I should write a story about my great grandmother. Um, the family legend is that she, uh, her mother died, and her father remarried. She was very wealthy. Her family were very wealthy and she couldn't stand her stepmother. Um, and she said to her father, essentially, she gave him an ultimatum and he returned it and said, it's, you know, if you don't get on with your stepmother, you can leave. And so she left. And the only things that were open to women at that time were um, working as a servant or 
prostitution and she chose to work as a, uh, as, as a servant. Um, her story at that point deviates from Euphemia's because Euphemia goes on to become um, at first a sort of amateur detective and eventually a, an agent of the Crown. Um, but along that story is where Euphemia came from, why she's in the position that she's in, and secrets that she doesn't know about her own life, which gradually unfold, the relationships that she goes through, the people that she gets romantically involved with but doesn't quite marry until she does marry, um, and then that's still really not her final destination, um, where she's going to end up, because you see her again as a background character in the in the Hope novels. And the Hope novels are much more um, espionage. Um, but they're, they're all about counter-terrorism rather than... They, they are dead bodies, because I've tried to write novels without dead bodies, and they always show up. I can't... It, there's something about, you know, the facing of mortality and being in a crisis situation that strips away what all the facades that people have and really shows you the sort of the core of what someone's like. And that doesn't have to be a good core, but it's kind of like the essence of humanity without the veneers. So I think that's why I keep dropping dead bodies into things. Um, but Euphemia's uh, stories are all, you know, in, uh, I, it's nice that you love a, a death in a gentleman's club, but that story is... Um, actually a payoff for really for fans that have read it with while there is a murder mystery in it there's also the fact we find out uh about her father um what her father was doing historically um and we find out that somebody has been manipulating her life for quite a long time so there are uh, the, the the characters all have their own arcs and their own stories and the murders and the things they come across are interwoven and i hope they don't come across as, um, you know, if this character appears, there, there's a dead body and actually they're a secret serial killer. Like, we, you know, you wonder about Miss Marple from time to time. There are reasons why they find bodies. Um, um, she becomes um, an agent of the Crown. And again, it's uh, World War, when in World War One they were, uh, it, was, it was much more free-ranging. Um, a lot of things is she's given those kind of things to to investigate, or she's tasked with seeing that someone is assassinated. Even she doesn't, she tends to find a different way around. But that there are in these particular stories that there are long stories, and you can read all the books individually. But people who are fans um, really like the books where they, there's a certain amount of payoff, and in fact. <laughs> There was one walk-on character who was never meant to be that um, important, uh, who's called Fitzroy, who is uh, an agent of the Crown in the Euphemia books and in the Hope books, because in my contract it says I must now include him because he had such a popular response. And for the last couple of years, I have been writing a weekly diary, non-chronological non, uh, for him, um, I haven't done it this year, but I, up until this year, I've, 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 and I think I'm going to start doing it again fairly shortly. So this is something else that appears in the background and it is in itself, I think, a couple of hundred thousand words long. But each story is, is not particularly long, but it's all about the character. Oh, that, that, yeah, that's interesting uh, that it's in your contract now that Fitzroy has to be in it. And I mean, you, you are a, 
you know, you're a working writer and you understand that these are the way that things are. But how is it sometimes when you, when maybe you're writing organically, but you know that you've got to have this guy in it? Well, he he's 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 become such a big character. It's fine. I'm I'm very fond of him. Um, I was surprised when it turned up in my contract. That was I mean, when it turned up in the contract, it said for these ones that you will include Euphemia, you will include Fitzroy, and sort of like, well, okay. I was probably going to do that anyway, but um, it was just a sign that he was so popular. Um, and it, it, it's funny how people respond to your books. As you're right, um, they they take on a life of the, of their own, and part of that is maybe something that's bubbling up through your unconscious um, and you're putting out there. And part of it is a, a response. And if, if you've got fans, you've got an audience who say, we really enjoyed this and you like it too, then you want to tell them more stories about what they really enjoy. Uh, win-win. When you are writing a series of stories that goes on, well, 17 novels and I imagine counting at the moment, and you've got all these characters in interweaving and it's it's a big kind of universe that you've made with this how far into the future are you thinking how much do you know about what people will be doing in one two or even three books time well i do kill them off along the way so they don't all remain um <laughs> I, I i i you can be fairly assured usually that the central characters survive but i have killed off some people um people didn't expect um, and by the time the second series comes around, some of the really significant characters are gone. Um, I think I know the destination for all of the characters, for all of the main characters, the re- reoccurring characters. Whether or not those stories will ever come out in print is another matter because, I mean, how far can you take a series before people get bored? Um, that, that's always a question for me. Um, I'm, I don't know how long the series will go on. That's partly the publisher's decision. I know um, where they all end up and what happens to them, but whether those stories get told, I don't know. When, when you are maybe dipping your toe into a genre that you've not worked on before, but, but say the first time you do uh, maybe something a bit more romantic or may, maybe the first time that you wrote YA, what tricks have you learned that help you quite quickly get to grips with what this genre is all about, the, the tone and the voice, as you spoke earlier. Is there anything you do? I think one of the things is I take a, I try to take a really hard look at who I think my audience is going to be and how I can best communicate with them. Um, one of the young adult novels I wrote is about cybercrime, but more importantly, it's about child grooming, children grooming other children for to do crime things and whether it is possible to get out of a very deprived situation and get yourself another life. Um, and that book is, well, it's so full of swear words <laughs> that um, I would hesitate to show it to some of my friends. But it was me looking at how people um, spoke how the, those kids spoke to each other and, and doing research and thinking about what would connect with them, what would become realistic. And you have to be careful not to use, uh, you know, trendy words of the time. But that is a very hard hitting, um, book that is, 
full of really gritty details and 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 swear words and tries to show how hard some people's lives can be. Um, another YA I wrote, which is um, fake news, which is all about um, uh, how some children decide to, well, young people decide to take over, uh, to create a website in which they will put the most fantastic stories to see if they can get people to believe them because they have all been injured by gossip on the web and they want to show people that you shouldn't trust what turns up on the internet. That book's funny. It has a dog in it. Um, the Euphemia books have a dog in them now as well. Um, it has a dog in it and probably those kids are all from a fairly middle-class background, so they speak differently. And it's quite funny in places and then it's quite tragic in others. And there's different issues that they have to deal with. Um, one of the things that they look at a lot in, uh, well, one of the, the big things that's looked at in that book is um, the issue of defining yourself and how you might define yourself by genre, um, not genre, by gender, um, and whether or not you have to commit to certain things and how you accept or don't accept difference. That's big, big thing about difference in fake news. Um, Ensnared, it's much more about how do you survive? How do you get out of a desperate situation where nobody is going to support you? So those are very different stories. They require a very different voice. So it, it kind of all ties up together. Um, Euphemia is, is I suppose, she's, she's very well educated. So she speaks in a almost Victorian manner. Not quite, but almost. And people tell me that's how I speak. So Euphemia is easy. Uh, writing Snared was hard. Um, writing The Augmenters was was different. It was much more of a sort of uh, uh, adventurous story in, in a fantasy adventure in the steampunk world. Um, and that required a different approach as well. Am I being at all clear? Yes, I think so. And my last question is all about The Augmenters, actually, because this is your most recent book that you've published, uh, albeit under a different name. Uh, and, and you wrote this just for your, well, uh, without contract, without anything like this, you were just writing for writing. What was it about this story that really meant it had to be told for you? You've got a lot of projects and you discussed working on them with your agent and thinking, maybe we should do this one right now. What was it about this one that many had to be told well the augmentus became suddenly much more um of the moment because within it is the story about how much you sacrifice your humanity to using machinery but at the heart of it it's a story um about people trying to, to um defeat uh, I suppose, a, a class and a political system young two young people trying to defeat a class and a political system that is uh, very um, abusive uh, towards lots of different people. And I think it's just a, it's a protest against how societies can go, how societies can not be uh, equal and open and, and um, give opportunity to everyone. So it, 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 that's, that's the theme. That's, the, that's the protest. The, the, Excitement comes from the fact that um, it's told from the point of view of somebody who gets caught up with um, underground gangs and rebellions and people telling with secrets and who has to try and figure out 
where the truth is and or not even where the truth is because it does truth exist what is the right thing to do and um, there's also all these mechanical marvels and there's this amazing uh sky locomotive that can travel across the world in hardly any time and they need to find out how that can be possible and there's there's romance and there's betrayal and and and, and there's mechanical soldiers and and there's horrible little things that uh, uh, that can be fired like look like little golden bugs that can kill people and there's all kinds of you know exotic things around it that was great fun to write and create but it's really a protest um the whole book is a protest about why can't things be fairer and that's it for this week's episode of writer's routine thank you so much to caroline dunford for being on the show uh, so many books that you can enjoy, uh, like 17 in the Euphemia Martins Mysteries. The new one is The Augmenters. That is out as Gemini Gibson right now. We are back next week with a brand new episode. In the meantime, you can support us, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. We are sponsored this week by the new true crime podcast, Who is the Cheese Wire Killer? Search, have a listen wherever you get your shows from. You can get in touch with the podcast too at writersroutine.com and we are on X at writerspod. And we've got a YouTube channel as well. If that's your preferred way of listening to these things, uh, get over to YouTube, find Writers Routine on there. We've got all the links on our X page and we're even on YouTube podcasts. You can find our episodes there. And I will see you next week with a brand new guest on the show. Until then, bye-bye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.